I think that time has come and gone of like, here's your sort of like weird half-baked product, <laughs> but it's helping somebody, so you should buy it. It's like, no, we can figure out a way to make a quality product and run our business in a way that is mindful of our community and contributing to our community. I think it's totally possible to be a successful, profitable business and do the right thing. This is the Redemptive Edge from Praxis. On this podcast, we talk to people who are building businesses and nonprofits that look at the world differently, or we'd say redemptively. They're aiming to renew culture through acts of creative restoration. Rather than using people to advance their mission, they aim to bless people. And they're led by people who aren't living for themselves or even just seeking to improve themselves, but people who aim to die to themselves so that something beautiful can happen in the world. That's the redemptive edge. It's not so much a destination where you arrive as a journey that you decide to take. And this podcast is about stories from that journey. I'm Andy Crouch, partner for theology and culture at Praxis. Years ago, I heard an exceptionally memorable sentence from a teacher of the spiritual life named Leanne Payne. She said, We either contemplate or we exploit. We either contemplate or we exploit. I honestly think this is one of the most important ideas I've ever encountered. I think what she meant is that if we skip the step of contemplation in any encounter, it can be with a person or with nature and God's creation or even with a a product or something we're considering purchasing, If we skip contemplation, we end up instinctively jumping to the question of how that person or thing can benefit us. And to contemplate is to hold off on the question of how we can benefit and just to behold. My guest on this episode of The Redemptive Edge is Britt Gilmore, president of The Giving Keys. If you haven't heard of The Giving Keys before, I promise that after you listen to this episode, you're going to realize that you've been seeing them all over on necklaces on fashionable people, wherever you go. They really are everywhere. And as you'll hear, Britt is a keenly competitive, execution-focused business leader who has helped build The Giving Keys into a major fashion brand. But the really distinctive thing about Britt is how every part of her life and the way she does business is shaped by contemplating first. Let's go back a little before the the Giving Keys and start to some extent with your own story, because I sense that there are some people who only gradually figure out what they want to do and how they want to do it in life. And then there are other people who seem to very early on crystallize a sense of calling. And I feel like you may be one of that second group of people. (laughs) Mm. So I'm wondering if that feels true. And when, if it began to come together for you, who you were going to be and, and kind of you began to pursue actually what you've ended up becoming and doing pretty early in life. Yeah, that certainly feels true for me. Well, first I'll just say that that has been clear to me as I've gotten older and have had relationships with my peers and kind of 
being in their process with them as they're figuring out what their career path is going to look like. There's lots of other areas of life that were not clear for me, but that was an area of life that was pretty clear for me by the time I was 18. And the underpinnings of that really started with my family and how they laid a foundation for reflection and contemplation. My dad was actually a pastor my whole life. And so I grew up a pastor's kid, which is always an interesting journey. Mine was mostly (laughs) positive. (laughs) But the thing that I really learned from him just in his way of being was to spend a lot of time in reflection and in contemplation. And that even included a lot of journaling. And as I was going through my high school years, I spent a lot of time kind of like almost maybe like an addictive level (laughs) amount of time (laughs) journaling. And what that was for me was just this outlet to really discover my identity and to kind of codify the things that mattered to me and really start casting a vision for what life can look like. And I will say this too, a lot of that was inspired by a trip, an international trip that I took when I was 17. And part of part of that trip, it was time spent in India. And it was definitely a time of, of self-discovery and being in a place I'd never been before and having my eyes open to something that I had never experienced yet. And one of the moments that was really transformative for me was walking out of this cafe in Mumbai and seeing a really young girl. She had one and a half legs and was holding Mm. a baby and begging for money. Mm. And people were walking past her. I didn't see in a period of a few minutes, anyone stop to talk to her or give her anything. Mm. And I remember thinking like, this is crazy. Like, Mm. No, I've, I've never experienced something like this before, but I always pause when I tell this story because we do that here in LA and in the US all the time, <laughs> walking past people that are living on the streets or experiencing homelessness and yeah. not paying attention to them or giving them our time and our conversation and our, our eye contact or anything. As another layer to this is that I went to Israel and was in the West Bank talking with a Palestinian family about what I do here in LA about the Giving Keys. And the dad of that family was totally shocked that there was a company that existed to help provide jobs for people that were experiencing homelessness. Hmm. He's like, is there that many people in your neighborhood that need a job and (laughs) are experiencing homelessness? And I was like, oh yeah. I mean, we're barely scratching the surface. It's tens of thousands, like 55,000 people in LA County. And his eyes got really big and he goes, that would just never happen here. We would never walk past someone. We would just never let someone in our neighborhood be homeless. So that experience I had when I was 17 and then the reality of what's happening with homelessness here in the US, we just get desensitized And there's things that become culturally acceptable or normal, and we just allow them to happen. And that's kind of how I started to see what was happening with that young girl in India. Mm -hmm. This is like a part of the landscape. And Mm -hmm. really interesting to experience that as a 17-year-old, then be awakened to my own sort of blindness to 
people that are living on the streets here in the U.S. here. I mean, in one of the richest places in the world. It strikes me that you had two unusual things then very early on. And one was this world-expanding experience, like external experience, going out to a very different place from... Where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit. Yeah. So, you know, from uh, suburban U.S. to India, I mean, that's an immersion in a completely different world. So you had this incredible kind of externally broadening experience. I want to hear a little more about the journaling, because there are plenty of young people, especially young girls, I think, who journal. They aren't always journaling about the deep topics that it sounds like you were journaling about, <laughs> like purpose, overall vision for my life, what my values are. <laughs> so you said your parents were an influence in that. What did you observe about how your your parents lived that maybe gave you a clue about how to start orienting yourself in the world at that age? Both my parents in their own ways are incredibly purpose-led people. And hmm kind of focusing on my mom because I, I don't mention her as much when I tell this story. And she's mm -hmm. an incredible woman who's done a lot of things in her life. She's now running an urban hydroponic farm in Detroit. Hmm. And that was born out of this sort of initially like a charity-based model where she was getting food from Trader Joe's and distributing that to mm -hmm. families that were experiencing food insecurity and as she was doing that, had this realization, oh my gosh, this is not the best way to do this. Why don't we create an opportunity to provide affordable produce in Detroit, which is essentially a food desert. There's very few grocery stores. There's not a lot of, there's not access to, to produce really mm. for most people living there. So that's what she's doing now. Before that, she was an author, a traveling musician. Yeah, was really a partner with my dad and what he was doing with his church. And she was taking, going on international trips and helping build orphanages and programs for children that were getting rescued out of sex trafficking in India. And I think maybe what she provided to me as an example and a model wasn't as direct. It was kind of by osmosis. Huh. Whereas my dad his style of parenting was to be much more like a teacher. And I guess that's just because he, he was a professor. He taught seminary and then taught speech and then was also pastoring a, a church in, in the suburbs of Detroit. But his, his sort of contemplative lifestyle was merged with my mom's sort of passionate, ambitious life. Uh -huh. I think the, the mix of those two things is, is really where a lot of it came from for me. Yeah, wow. So one more question about the contemplative side of this. When I think about high school and imagine being a contemplative, reflective high schooler, I wonder if you felt odd. <laughs> and, and did you find friends who shared this depth? Like, sounds like you were pursuing a kind of depth that maybe is not the most typical for high schoolers. Maybe, but in reflection, looking back, I'm like, oh, yeah, I was kind of weird. <laughs> like in the yearbook, I got the, the award that I received from my classmates was most unique. Uh, yes. Yeah, I don't know. I'll say this. I didn't feel like I was doing anything exceptional. I was just doing what felt true to who I was and the process that I needed to stay grounded and feel a sense of purpose in my life. And... Because I had such a significant experience 
And that experience, I think, was one of the driving factors in me having this very contemplative two years of my kind of like end of high school Uh, phase because uh. I had experienced something that really changed the way that I saw the world. And then I felt the need to, like, I couldn't shake that feeling. So I had to do something with it. And I had to figure out what I was going to do with it. Wow. How did you decide not to go, just go back to India? Or how did, you know, there are kind of two paths. One is you, you sort of plunge straight in to some kind of service or another is to have maybe a, a, a longer horizon of, okay, I need to go get this kind of experience. I, I eventually want to do something. And you start a, a path of development or training. Which one did you do and why and how? So it really was a series of conversations towards the end of my senior year of high school with my parents and a few of my friends, and then a lot of my parents' friends, (laughs) who were people I loved and respected and were very wise, and I knew that they cared about me and wouldn't steer me wrong. I kind of had this plan in my head of, well, I'm going to raise money, and then I'm going to go out to India and keep finding ways to raise money for these safe homes that are rescuing kids out of sex trafficking. And as I started talking about that with my friends and my family and a lot of questions around like, sure, that's great. Go for it if that's what you really want to do. But what else are you interested in? And let's have a conversation about like holistically what you care about and then where your strengths are and how those two things could potentially intersect. And so I had always loved fashion my grandma, my mom were seamstresses and my mom would make us matching outfits all the time. And <laughs> I was always like picking through her jewelry and I wore super weird outfits in high school and like dyed my hair purple and pink and was just always kind of expressing myself through what I wore and how I did my hair and right. all the graphic tees I would buy from Salvation Army, <laughs> <laughs> whatever that looked like. So Diving into that and having some conversations with people that were older and wiser than me, there sort of bubbled up this idea of, well, what if you could do both? Right. And through this series of conversations, this whole idea of like, well, you love fashion and that's kind of a natural strength of yours. And I started out on this path of, well, I want to go work for a fashion company that I could be a part of helping clean up their supply chain and make sure that the workers' rights are protected. So that was kind of like the first initial idea was, well, I guess I could go into fashion and and work on that side of it, and that would be serving and helping people in other parts of the world or whatever. And then at the same time, one of my dad's really good friends became the president of a fashion school that was in the suburbs of Detroit. And he's like, why don't you just try it out and see what you think? And so I applied and I got in and started on this educational path of learning everything I could about the fashion industry so that at some point, one day in the future, I could find a way to to merge that with something like impact-focused or, or philanthropic in a way. I wasn't super clear about what that was going to look like, but it just, it seemed like the right Direction. I don't know. It just like I had this yeah. intuitive feeling about it that maybe there is a way that these two things could intersect and, and actually be really impactful. And, and I get to utilize 
elements of myself and my identity that are really fun and light and creative, which I think we all also need. Like when you're just heavy, heavy, heavy all the time. Yes. Having that balance, whether that's like a hobby that you have or it's also a part of your work, I think that's like absolutely critical to sustaining a healthy, long career in something that you care about. So I, I think that the the balance of having this creative outlet, this product that in a way is is not totally necessary to life, yeah, <laughs> merged yeah. with something meaningful and significant and community building has been has been really healthy for me. I mean, it's a very deep question, I think. What is the role of seemingly superfluous things? And I have come to almost think that Strangely enough, having things that are not directly utilitarian, like they don't just sort of meet a a basic bottom of the pyramid kind of need, but are actually simply beautiful, joy-bringing, creative, light, as you said, that that actually is like one of the bottom of the pyramid needs for human beings. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wonder what you think about this. As you reflect back many years later on that girl you saw with the baby... It's so easy to see a bunch of very tangible needs that she has or that 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 baby that she's holding has. But actually, they also need beauty and non-material or non-utilitarian things to to flourish, right? Yes. And so often, uh, out of the best of intentions, we, we build ways of relieving the very sort of acute needs without actually providing that deeper beauty that is part of being human. Yes. 100%. So here are the ingredients of Britt's story. She's contemplating life through journaling from way earlier on than most of us. She begins to contemplate her own particular calling and love of fashion with the help of people who know her well. And she encounters the need and suffering in the world, both in very individual ways, that one girl with a baby in India, and in systemic ways, the whole industry of fashion, the supply chains that go into global industries. And then she meets Caitlin Crosby, the founder of The Giving Keys. When you really have done the work of understanding your vocation, things can move super quickly. Britt joins The Giving Keys as a production manager. One month later, she becomes web manager. A few months later, she becomes managing director with operational oversight for the whole company. And a couple of years later, she's named president. And the mission of The Giving Keys is almost perfectly aligned with the vision that had emerged out of all that contemplation in the years before. So The Giving Keys exists to employ people that are transitioning out of homelessness here in Los Angeles. And the jobs that we are providing are jewelry-making positions. So we're a for-profit jewelry company. Every piece of jewelry that we make has a word of inspiration on it, like love, strength, courage, hope, fearless. And the point is that you're supposed to wear a word as your daily reminder and embrace that message for your life, whatever that looks like. And then at some point, you're going to meet somebody else that needs that word more than you, and you're supposed to give it away to that person. Like a good example would be somebody that had cancer and went through treatment Mm. and then went into remission, and then they meet somebody else that is going through that same treatment or that same experience and they wore their strength key through that whole treatment time. And then they're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to give my strength to you. I got through it, so can you. Hmm. And there's just these beautiful human connection moments. And I think that's what we're really trying to create with the product is not this, it's a a cool 
fashion item. Like you can wear it. It looks great. looks cute with your outfit, all those things. And that's fun. And that, that matters in, in a way. But what we're really going for is that deeper layer of how can you take something that you're probably going to end up wearing every day otherwise from another brand, but make it meaningful And then also use it as an opportunity to create hope and inspiration and meaning for somebody else that you meet. And I think that there's also a cool kind of like pivoting back to the the homelessness side, which is the thing that really drew me into the business is there's a very cool symbolism in the fact that it's a key. We started with keys. We've included other shapes now on the, on the jewelry, but keys are still the primary thing that we do. And there's something really beautiful about this idea of, a job unlocking a home for wow. somebody. That's amazing. I have not ever thought about the connection between the key and the home yeah. in that way. And yet once you say it, I mean, I think some of the most powerful brands are, there's this idea from anthropology of condensed symbols. So there's there's things, I mean, for Christians, the and in some ways in all of history, the cross is the most powerful, like it's the simplest possible thing. It's just two lines, but it represents so much. And condensed symbols are these things that just, in a very simple form, manage to embody a tremendous amount of value and even history or aspiration. And you, you've you got that in, in such a powerful way with these little keys that people wear, that I see all over <laughs> people wearing. And then I was struck as you yeah, I was struck as you were talking. I don't know, maybe some are not. Do you have competition? Because I really do see these quite often around people's necks. And I wonder, are those all like legit original giving keys? Any sense that you're getting uh, competition out there? We are, unfortunately. But in one sense, it's kind of cool because it's become a, a trend that is obvious enough out in the market that other brands are wanting to pick up on it. Right. But obviously we want to be able to retain the market share on that because the more that people come to us for that, the more jobs we're able to create. Yes, right. So the way huh. that we talk to people that are, are knocking huh. us off is like, hey, if you didn't know, we're also, we're not just a jewelry company. We're also, we have this social mission. And by you producing this product and releasing it in the market, it's taking away our opportunity and our market share. So there's people that we could be employing if folks were going to come buy from us, but they're buying from you instead. So you could really serve us and help us in this social mission if you stop selling your version of it. Wow. It's hard to say no to that. Taking, taking the, uh, the, anti, the non-compete letter Guilt to trip. another level. <laughs> <laughs> So I hadn't thought about the key connection with with the the home and and the homelessness that your employees have experienced at some point. But the other thing you said that I had not thought about before is how having this thing around my neck that I know I'm going to give away someday, in a way you must wake up every morning at some level and think, oh, maybe today's the day I meet the person that I give my key to. Yes, And it changes the way you interact with any number of people, right? Because mm-hmm. you're rather than being in your in your own world, in your headphones or whatever, you're you're at some level you're alert at there's going to be a day that I wake up and that's the day I find the person who I want to have this very meaningful exchange with. Yeah. That's amazing. That's our goal is that you would wake up thinking, all right. Have I sort of embraced this for myself yet? Like what work is left to do around this theme in my life? 
or wake up thinking, I feel like I really got the strength that I needed and, and I'm ready to, to hand that off to somebody now. And then you are kind of like keeping your eyes peeled. Or at very least, if you're in an interaction that you were anticipating, maybe you're willing to take it to another place or take it to the next level because you just want to connect with somebody who might also need that word. So one of the things I think is, is interesting about the product itself is a consumer product that's meant to be given away is very interesting, as opposed to just something for me to have. Mm-hmm. So it's all very interesting on, you know, it, at Praxis, we think about kind of three axes where, where a business can be redemptive, and, and one is the product itself. And so it strikes me that there, there are some really interesting redemptive like qualities to the product itself. But then let's talk about the, the other side, which is the the process by which this product comes into the world or the the culture of the organization. And that's the other thing that's very striking about what you're doing is, uh, is who your, who your people are, who your employees are. So how early on was this the vision to actually employ people experiencing homelessness as the main labor force of the company? Sure. So our founder, Caitlin Crosby, she started this 10 years ago and the first probably year, year and a half. She was just working with a locksmith that was making all the keys until one night she saw this homeless couple named Rob and Sarah, and they were holding up a sign that said, ugly, broken, hungry. And she just felt compelled to connect with them. So invited them to dinner. They sat down, swapped life stories. And over the course of the dinner, Caitlin complimented Sarah's necklace And Sarah's response was, I made this. I actually make jewelry. That's my hobby. And it was this aha moment for Caitlin where she's like, oh my gosh, you guys are the missing link to the giving keys. I've been having this locksmith make them and I'm selling them on my tour. And like, do you want a job? And they were both like, yeah, that would be great. And literally the next day after the dinner, they got all the equipment from, from Caitlin and started stamping the keys and little by little saved enough money to move into a hotel and then move eventually into an apartment. So that's how it started. And then we now have been able to create over 120 jobs for people that are transitioning out of homelessness in in the past 10 years. And we consider ourselves a bridge employer, which means our goal isn't to keep people for forever in a living wage jewelry assembly position. We want them to come be with us for two to three years, partner with them on their career goals and get them on one of three pathways. And one would be to move them up within the organization into a higher paying position where they're taking on a a bigger scope. Second would be kind of graduating out into another job where there's opportunity to earn more money and um, have more career advancement. And then the third path is actually a small venture path. We love creating a supportive work environment for folks when they're in that process of like, I need to just get into housing. And that usually happens within six to 12 months of them starting with us. But then we really want to have that dialogue around where do you want to land ultimately? And keeping some of our folks on board in those kind of promoted positions, whether that's production coordination or customer service or retail sales is also great because then they can act as peer navigators to the new people that we hire. And because they have that lived experience, it's really meaningful and 
effective at creating an environment where new folks coming in feel like they belong. You are doing it as a for-profit company, not mm-hmm. as a nonprofit. I would think many organizations that do this are structured as nonprofits. Do you ever encounter kind of a tension between the needs of the business as a for-profit entity on the one hand, and its responsibility ultimately to its owners and the bottom line and so forth, and the developmental work of accompanying people through this stage of life that they're in? So what's interesting is I think what's far more challenging, I would think most everyone on our team would agree with this, what's been far more challenging is dealing with the changes in the retail sector (laughs) and then just the the sort of like cycles that businesses go through, especially when you're in a trend-driven industry. How do we keep iterating the product without abandoning the like iconic key shape without abandoning the word on the key, these things that are really critical to our brand and to people's experience of the key that they're wearing. That's actually been significantly more challenging. But yeah, I think the part of it that's been harder for us, especially in the last like two to three years, is just figuring out how do we build this brand to last long term. That takes a lot more strategic thinking around product mix and pricing and distribution channels and all of those things. When I go on the site, you know, preparing for this interview, and I was struck that there's this very deep story behind what you're doing, an incredible commitment to a very remarkable group of people who are doing the work. And what was striking was how the photography and presentation felt so much like mainstream fashion, like high fashion models. The photography is says kind of luxury. Price is not especially, it's certainly not rarefied, you know, exclusive just by virtue of price type luxury. It's not cheap, but it's not crazy. But I'm interested in the choice to like go just straight up and say, this is a beautiful thing. And in a way, you don't have to know the story behind it to potentially find this appealing as an object in its own right and as something that's worth the price. Yeah, I actually have a lot of opinions about this because I hope and I believe where the private sector is headed and where these consumer products are headed and where kind of customer sentiment is going is that this would just be the expectation of brands is that they're doing the right thing. I hope for a day in the future where that doesn't even need to be a part of your marketing mix, that consumers would just be so motivated to purchase from brands that they know are doing it right or are contributing in some way that the focus really can be on the product and the value proposition of that product. And it you don't have to be sold on it by some sort of missional story to back it up. I think that time has come and gone of like, here's your sort of like, weird half-baked product, but it's helping somebody, so you should buy it. It's like, no, we can figure out a way to make a quality product and run our business in a way that is mindful of our community and contributing to our community. I think it's totally possible to be a successful, profitable business and do the right thing. Let's talk about the phrase that came up at least in your when you were talking with Mary Elizabeth, our producer, was cause yeah. marketing, which I think a lot of people would identify 
maybe the giving cues as, as an example of that you are on a, on a continuum maybe where where the story is part of the product and and you would actually like to see that be true in a sense be the default but what do you see as the risks of that? Are there downsides to having your product kind of wrapped up in, in this case, perhaps uh, people who have experienced homelessness? Are there any ways that can go wrong to be tightly tied to that kind of social cause or mission? Yeah, I think it's a really fine line between storytelling and informing people, informing customers of the reality of your mission and your brand and in our case, our, our mission around homelessness and employment as a solution to homelessness and doing that effectively. And then that not tipping into like exploitation where you're telling these stories to get people to purchase and not appropriately compensating or getting permission from your team to do that. So a huge part of the way we've approached that is Anytime we're featuring anyone from our team or including them, there's always a conversation prior to that with the team about anyone who doesn't want to be in the building when that's happening because they don't want to be captured even in the background. And then the folks that we would want to feature, it's, it's always you get to tell how your story is going to be told. We're not going to decide that for you. We're not going to like write a script and then have you recite it. It's a, hey, here's the opportunity. Here's, here's what they're trying to accomplish. Would you be willing to participate in that? And how do you want to show up for that? Yes, right. And what part of your story do you want to, to offer in support of that? But I think to boil it down really simply, it's inviting people into that experience if that feels like an empowering opportunity for them and then not forcing them into it. And then when they do accept the invitation, not making them tell their story a certain way. <laughs> uh. It's like, no, it's your story to tell. You tell it how you want to tell it. I think maybe where brands, or just people that cause market in general can miss it, is there's so much that's already assumed. Like when people are hearing about giving keys, there's ways we can talk about our mission that doesn't put that burden on our staff to be the tellers of that story. And we really love having a future focus. Like if you go on our website or you see the, the Instagram posts or anything that we're communicating about our staff, we've been really intentional about making that future focused oh, rather than right. here's how sad their life was before and here's everything that they went through and now they work with us and we're the hero. Like that's not what we're trying to communicate at all. It's really... We admire this person. This person inspires us with their strength. This is where they're at now, and, and it's, we want to celebrate that. Let's talk about one of the core ideas we're trying to explore in this podcast is redemptive entrepreneurship. And our sort of go-to definition of redemptive entrepreneurship increasingly at Praxis is creative restoration through sacrifice, that somehow redemption involves a sacrificial act or posture in the world that, that restores things that were lost. Let's start with sacrifice. What sacrifices have to happen at Giving Keys for, for it to flourish? Like when you look around in your role you personally, but also others in the system at all levels and in all roles, like what are the sacrifices that are required for this to be done in the right way, in the way that's really sustainable, in the way that's really the most restorative? I think 
when you're looking at our industry, the jewelry space, particularly like costume jewelry, and that that term is used to just explain anything that's not fine jewelry, all of our competitors are producing overseas. So the sacrifice here is when you look at it from like a financial standpoint, we are competing against brands that are able to produce at a significantly lower cost. That's a sacrifice that we make is to produce here. And the fact that we're also committed to paying living wage, we're not paying a minimum wage, we're, we're paying above that. We're actually paying above living wage. So the cost of that labor is very significant compared to the cost of the labor that you would be employing overseas. So obviously at some level of the ownership chain, some people are giving up dividends in a sense or you know income they could take out of the business that that they're not it's going back into into the people and and so that's a real financial sacrifice but there must also be other things that you have to become good at sacrificing in order to run the kind of operation that can still pay that level of wage yeah we recently had a conversation in transitioning our healthcare benefits because of the folks who were on our production team the way that we try to shift the costs of those benefits so that that team doesn't have to carry as significant a burden because they're earning less money and they're also up against other obstacles. We offset that by having our salaried employees contribute more. Oh, wow. Yes. (laughs) That counts as sacrifice. (laughs) (laughs) But that is something that we had a conversation with our team about. And that's the decision that we all came to because the people that work for us and I'm, I'm meaning the folks who are not experiencing homelessness that choose to work for the Giving Keys. They come here because they care about it and they want to give their time and their career trajectory to this kind of work. So they're thinking about all those elements of their job in a way that's very different than if they were working for a company that didn't have that kind of mission baked in. But yeah, I would say that that's a tangible sacrifice. And then a lot of folks that work for us are coming here. Like we're not venture backed. We're not, we've actually never taken on investment. The only funding that we've ever had is debt funding. Um, So we've really like bootstrapped it, which is also can be challenging when you're out there looking for talent and recruiting a team. One of the things that can be complicated about bringing investment in as a mission driven organization is that your investors could potentially not care as much about the mission. Right. And it strikes me that by narrowing that pool and by at least so far not going the equity route, you also take a lot more risk on yourselves and a lot more constraints. Like you have to make this work a narrower lane than someone who might be able to get a, you know, millions of dollars infused in and just a little bit of running room and breathing room. Instead, you've sort of accepted The oxygen is always going to feel a little thin. The need to pivot quickly and figure out what the next, like, path to a, you know, the next piece of the market, that's going to be harder than if you just add some cash. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That was, that's a sacrifice. (laughs) Yes. It's a, it's a big one. And I don't think that that has to be an ongoing sacrifice. I think that there are people out there that would be interested in partnering with us financially that care about the mission and there could be some real alignment there. 
Let's talk briefly about the then the restoration side. Uh, so our premise would be that when these kind of sacrifices are made, things are restored that couldn't be restored any other way. Like there would be other ways to do your business that would be less sacrificial, at least along these dimensions. But then they'd be missing out on something. And how would you describe like the restoration you're seeing? And there's probably many different like even places or people that it's happening among that can only happen because of the choices you and your teammates have made to live sacrificially? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, the effects on the lives of our team members, I think that's the most rewarding. And then also the kind of the most obvious, probably, when we're talking about the choices we've made as a brand and the mission that we're committed to and what those outcomes look like and the sacrifices that we're making to ensure that those outcomes are not compromised. That looks like someone working for us that's sleeping on a, a, a bus stop bench for the first couple of weeks that they're with us, us getting them connected to a place where they can at least have a roof over their head for a period of time. And then within nine months, them having their own apartment and signing a lease for the first time in 10 years. For that to happen is, is, is the reason why we're all there. I think one of the, the parts that is the most profound to me is when our team members reun reunify with their families. So there's a lot of folks who either because of just geographic separation or fractures in their relationships for whatever reason have not talked with their families or had relationships, particularly with their kids. I think that's one of the, the more significant ones to me, just as a, as a person in their community observing and watching them come together with people that matter to them, when they reconnect with their children, it's so profound. So think about 18-year-old Brit journaling 25 journals worth. Um, <laughs> what would you tell her now if you could just go back and just tell yourself something as you were just putting all these pieces together in terms of what you were imagining? What would you want her to know that you didn't know maybe then? I mean, I think I would say to her, it's going to be better than you think think and it's going to be harder than you think and there would be this mix of yes go keep doing this it's going to pay off it's going to be so satisfying but then also this sort of 30 year old Brit <laughs> saying but prepare yourself because there are going to be some very hard days and it's going to be very challenging are you wearing a giving key right now Always. I figured it's like probably, <laughs> like you say, required of Giving Keys employees that they have a Giving Key on. <laughs> it's strongly encouraged. <laughs> All right. So what, uh, if you don't mind me asking, what word is on your Giving Key? My key says dream. Dream. Yeah. And what's funny is that it was actually given to me by our product team because they wanted me to wear test it <laughs> to make sure that the, <laughs> that the finish was like, solid and quality and going to hold up before we like started selling it. And <laughs> did they pick the word or did you pick the word? They picked the word. Huh. Um, they, they just handed it to me and I was like, great, I'll wear that. No problem. But what's interesting is I actually had a conversation yesterday about what word was on my key. And I didn't realize that that word actually was significant to me right now until someone asked me to think about it 
from the perspective of, oh, you wear a word that you need, so obviously you need that. And I'm wearing it because I'm thinking, well, I got a product test and wear test this thing. <laughs> but when I had the chance to reflect and be like, oh no, dream actually is really significant to me because I'm moving into a season of life where my husband and I want to have a family and there's other elements of life that are coming like deeper and further into frame yeah. that I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about. Huh. and imagining or dreaming how I would want them to be. So it's kind of creating... What's interesting is I've actually started journaling again. Like I kind of abandoned that when I was like in the thick of running this business right, right. and shouldn't have done that. I really wish I would have stayed more committed to it because it's such a grounding practice for me. But I've started journaling more and a lot of what I'm like thinking about and writing about has a lot to do with family and... Huh my future family and hopefully our future kids, but then also my current familial connections and how to nurture those relationships because I've been out in LA for 10 years and my family's all back in Michigan and I only get to see them yeah. every once in a while. And yeah. as I'm approaching like the potential of motherhood, I'm being very reflective about my relationship with my mom and my dad and yes. what our family dynamics are like and just being very thoughtful about that. So. I'm so glad you're back to journaling. I, that, it was, <laughs> I was really thinking, you have to journal. Like, clearly, this is a time when you have to go back to that capacity that you first was awakened in you, you know, as a teenager. And now it's time to do some more of that. That's so great yes. that you're doing it. In 10 to 15 years, we'll talk again. And I'll ask you what you would say to your 30-year-old self. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Presumably, you'll say... It's going to be better than you can imagine and harder than you can imagine at the same time. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it's okay. I feel like I already know that's true. Britt Gilmore, president of The Giving Keys. You can find out more about them and purchase a key that will be yours for only a little while at thegivingkeys, all one word, dot com. The way that Britt described their approach to telling the stories of the men and women who work with them reminded me of one of our new projects at Praxis called the Redemptive Nonprofit Playbook. There are six areas that we talk about in this playbook for doing nonprofit work more uh, thoroughly redemptively and less and less exploitatively. Things like the way you tell your beneficiary's story, the way you build your team, the way you design your programs, and the giving keys is exemplary in almost all of them. And Britta and her team are doing this in a for-profit context, but we would love to see this kind of excellence become the standard for every nonprofit that works with vulnerable communities. You can check out the Redemptive Nonprofit Playbook at redemptivenonprofit, all one word, dot org. If you want to know more, more generally about Praxis and what we do, visit us at praxislabs, all one word, dot org, praxislabs.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes, which is by far the best way to help us find more listeners. And we'd also love to address your questions. We're very near the end of our first season now, and we're preparing a bonus episode based totally on questions that you have. So just leave them right in your review, or you can give us comments and questions on our website at podcast.praxislabs.org, where you can also find transcripts and show notes. The Redemptive Edge is produced by Mary Elizabeth Goodell, our community manager at Praxis, with executive production from the long-suffering and ever-patient, ever-hopeful Scott Kaufman, our partner for content. And we're very grateful to Narrativo for their editing and production help. I'm Andy Crouch. Thanks for joining us on The Redemptive Edge. Redemptive Edge.